This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we have a guest on the show today. We are talking to Dr. Elizabeth P. Archibald. She is the author of Ask the Past, Pertinent and Impertinent Advice from Yesteryear, which started out as a blog just called Ask the Past. If you're not familiar with it, it's this collection of tidbits drawn mostly from medieval and early mod- modern works, mainly written in Europe with a little brief commentary, too. And this focus is really because of Elizabeth's focus and interest in this time and place in history. We could for sure talk about advice from the rest of the world and the rest of history, too. And if you're interested in that, uh, the, the same, same sorts of things we're going to talk about today also make an appearance in our episode on Seishonagon's pillow book from the Heian ep- uh, era in Japan. So advice is not limited just to Europe, but that is uh, Elizabeth's focus. So, And some of this advice is uh, flat out oddball. The very idea that somebody ever thought you might need to know or tell someone how to trim your toenails underwater is a little bit strange. Uh, <laughs> there are also some really weird recipes. There's one uh, from 1685, a recipe for making a sort of snail-based lembas, which apparently is like a theme through our show. Everything is like lembas. And another one from 1660 about making a giant egg as big as 20 eggs out of 20 eggs with other assorted ingredients. <laughs> I, it's like a giant Japanese robot situation, but with eggs, where they all right. come together and make a super egg. There are other how-tos in this book that start out making sense, but then they take this almost surreal turn. So there's, for example, this 1650 advice for singing. A singer should not sing through the nose. Sure, that makes sense. He must not stammer, lest he be incomprehensible. So, right, that works too. He must not push with his tongue or lisp, else no one will hardly understand half of what he says. So all this is still common sense. That's valid advice. But then it says, he should also not close his teeth together, nor open his mouth too wide, nor stretch his tongue out over his lips, nor thrust his lips upward, nor distort his mouth, nor disfigure his cheeks and nose like the long-tailed monkey, nor crumple his eyebrows together, nor wrinkle his forehead, nor roll his head or eyes therein round and round, nor win with the same, nor tremble with the lips, etc. Doesn't that sound like the most persnickety music teacher on earth? Yes. <laughs> Somebody needed to put that in a book. And yet even with these silly and weird and whimsical and sometimes, frankly, dangerous uh, bits, like training a cat to fire a pistol, what, you shouldn't do that? Uh, <laughs> or making bird missiles, which was a 13th century invention. Sometimes it's reassuring that people have wanted to know how to lose weight and attract a partner and avoid acquaintances they don't want to see for hundreds of years. So John H. Young, circa 1881, advises, if you want to avoid an acquaintance, looking away and not making eye contact. <laughs> that seems pretty basic. Yeah. I guess that's in the I hope they don't see me kind of arena. <laughs> But with all this in mind, I cannot wait to hear your talk with Elizabeth, who pulled all of this crazy stuff together from hundreds of years worth of advice and books. Yeah, we've had several episodes lately that you recorded while I was not in the room, and this one I recorded while you weren't here. So exciting twist. Yes. (laughs) 
So today I am talking to Elizabeth P. Archibald, who is the author of Ask the Past, Pertinent and Impertinent Advice from Yesteryear, which was also a blog. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me on. So I enjoyed this book a whole lot. It's it's little snippets of advice from the past, along with your commentary and artwork. Uh, it's really funny and sometimes also weirdly touching. And it took me about twice as long to read it as I planned because I kept texting Holly hilarious things that I found in it. Um, can you tell us how all of this started? How did you get into this chronicling advice from the past? Yeah. Um, so my academic research deals with the history of education and the history of the book. So I'm interested in asking questions like what sort of advice people thought it was worthwhile to put in writing, what kinds of things should be taught by a book rather than by a teacher, and what kinds of things it was actually possible to learn that way. And so I was teaching a course at the Peabody Institute of Johns Hopkins University called How To, A History of Instruction, which I designed around the idea that you can look at classic historical texts sort of through the lens of the how-to manual. So Plato's Republic as how-to manual and Machiavelli and so on. And as part of this course, we spent a lot of time in the George Peabody Library looking at its rare books collection. And the stuff that I turned up was just great. Um, A 16th century book about swimming that included advice on how to trim your toenails underwater, um, 17th century conduct manuals, 18th century books about how to get rid of rats, um, 19th century guides to palm reading. Um, and at that point, that was when I began posting material to a blog. I just realized that the world needed to know how to trim your toenails underwater in the 16th century. And uh, the blog developed an audience, and soon I started getting questions from around the world, like, how should I impress my boss? How should I wash my hair? And it just sort of went from there. So did did you notice any trends in the sorts of things that people thought were worth writing down instructions on how to do? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Some types of how-to manuals and books of advice are really uh, actually pretty similar now to their predecessors from centuries ago. Um, And in some cases, the actual advice even sort of remains in circulation. Etiquette handbooks are one category that come to mind. Um, Giovanni della Casa's Galateo uh, is a really foundational text for the history of etiquette, and that's one that was translated and imitated almost immediately. Um, And the advice from that book just sort of stayed in circulation. So instructions about how to blow your nose politely, you know, use a handkerchief and then um, when you're done blowing your nose, don't open the handkerchief in front of people, this sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, And that was interesting because um, an early French version of that text was translated into English and then that became the basis for a set of etiquette rules that were copied out by George Washington when he was 16 years old or something. So it's sort of interesting how some of these things actually just stick around, you know. 
responding to universal human desires to know how to blow your nose properly, I guess. <laughs> um, there are a lot of, of books like this that just sort of repeat advice over long periods of time. Um, there's a book by Thomas Lupton from the 16th century called A Thousand Notable Things. And that one amazingly continued to be published in new editions into the 19th century. Um, and then there are things like um, Pliny the Elder suggested violets as a hangover cure. And I, when, when I posted this on the blog, I actually heard from some people who said, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard that, too. I've tried it. Works okay. Um, or old wives' tales like the recommendation to put butter on your cat's feet to keep it from running away, or the notion that um, a pregnant woman who takes a step first with her right foot is carrying a boy. These pieces of advice, you know, are around from the ancient world, and they're still sort of sticking with us. So that's interesting to me. Well, and it also seems like the the general perception, not necessarily of people who have really studied medieval life, but the sort of common perception of the medieval world is that it was a gross, dirty, mannerless place. <laughs> but your book actually has a whole lot of medieval manners in it. Yes, lots of manners. Um, I think etiquette in particular is sort of an interesting story because people who who know about the history of etiquette, think that it sort of began in the Renaissance with Giovanni della Casa. But in fact, there are a lot of etiquette manuals, sort of conduct books from the Middle Ages that are articulating these important principles of cleanliness and politeness and things to do and not do at the dinner table and what types of animals you're allowed to bring into the dining room and what types you're not and all of that stuff. I like the one about, I think this was later than that, but the one about leaving a party and not bringing your horse into the hall unless you are instructed that it's okay to have your horse in the hall. Yes, which is excellent advice for a party, even today. So let's take a little break from this interview, Holly. I am delighted to learn this idea that you should put butter on your cat's paws when you move so that it doesn't get lost goes way back in history. Yeah, I have heard that advice for hairballs, you know, to help your cat pass a hairball or cough one up, but never as a trekking option. But it seems sort of brilliant and well, possibly delicious. And the idea <laughs> is that you put the butter on the cat's paws and let it walk around, leaving buttery tracks in your new home. Uh, but then it will lick the, the butter off its paws and get the scent of the new place and not run away. That is this idea that apparently has been around a really long time, which this- somehow... You, cat lady, have not heard, but I, cat lady, have. No, it's pretty ingenious. There's a logic to it. Yeah. Although I picture my very chubby cat, Mr. Burns, just sitting there and licking all the butter off me. Like, <laughs> I don't want to walk anywhere. <laughs> uh, but we are going to actually uh, take a brief word from a sponsor before we hear the rest of this charming and really interestingly informative interview. So let's go do that real quick. So for the next uh, portion of this interview, we are going to talk a little bit about Elizabeth's process in making this book. And then we will get into some of the oddity that is involved in all this old advice. (laughs) So you have so much advice that's been gleaned from so many places and over such a long span of history. What was your process like for winnowing all this down? (laughs) 
it's such a fun process. I mean, really, it's it's just delightful to be able to look at old books and sort of page through them and um, find these fascinating little pieces of advice and kind of um, track down leads. You know, if I find a reference to, you know, an ancient technique for tattoo removal and being able to just sort of look around until I find something interesting. Um, it's really great. And I am very lucky to be situated uh, in a in a nice rare books collection at the George Peabody Library, um, where I can do a lot of that. Uh, but then, of course, these days, a lot of material has been digitized, too. So there's just so much stuff at our fingertips now that it's possible to dig into medieval manuscripts at a moment's notice which is really exciting. So I I found myself being very envious of your time spent in rare book collections while working on this book, because uh, there there's so many cool gems in rare book collections from around the world. Did you have any just awesome discoveries as you were pouring through these very old rare books to work on this? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's such a quirky project too. Um, you know, it's it's really fun to be able to look at the old books, but it's also sort of funny to be in these very serious libraries and, you know, looking at old hangover cures or um, looking in medieval manuscripts to try to find the best illustration of a cat licking its rear end and that sort of thing. So that's <laughs> that's been fun as well. Well, yeah, and I had I had sort of. I had noted almost for the, the end as an afterthought that the process of getting artwork to accompany all these things, but that's, that's actually, there's as much artwork in the book as there is text. So th- did you feel like the, the process for going through all of these, uh, instructions compared to the process of finding artwork that, that went with it, or was that a different, uh, experience? Well, I mean, it was in some ways a different experience. It, as much as I wish that each one of these pieces of advice was illustrated, um, because in some cases I think the the results would be pretty fascinating. Um, they don't all have illustrations, and yet it was sort of important to me to be able to offer something from the right time period that at least evoked the right technique, and that was. A fun process as well, just sort of um, thinking of the right genres of book that would have illustrations of, you know, people with unibrows and that sort of thing. So that that in and of itself was just sort of an adventure in rare books collections. One of the things that you wrote about in the introduction to the book was about how it got to the point that it was hard to distinguish sometimes between parodies of instructions and actual instructions, because some of the instructions themselves are so weird. <laughs> uh, are there examples of ones that you either uh, left out because they definitely were a parody or ones that are in the book that you're not quite sure if that was an actual instruction or making fun of this whole uh, genre of book? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, it's it is actually very difficult sometimes to know how serious the text is, whether the past is sort of pulling your leg a little bit. Um in some cases it's pretty clear. There are some parody recipes um where it's 
actually pretty clear that it's a parody. So they call for ingredients like um, Goldfinch's feet and the sweat of a pebble and these kind of made-up things. So that's a good cue. Um, on the other hand, there are recipes that are apparently serious that call for some some pretty strange ingredients. Um, so, you know, when you keep seeing the gall of a weasel, you start to wonder at a certain point how serious it is. But um, in most cases, I think the outlandish ingredients are serious. Um, then there's the problem of, I mean, it's not really a problem, but you will encounter text that just sort of have a funny tone to them. These authors from the past who are being a little bit ridiculous in the presentation of their advice. And I think that is what's going on in one selection from the book on how to give birth from the 15th century, where the author recommends that women who are in labor should scream a lot so that everyone hears them and feels pity for them and then will bring them um, roast chickens and fine wines in order to make them feel better. Um, so you encounter that too, you know, just these sort of funny authors who are enlivening their serious advice with a little bit of playfulness. Circling back to the the weird ingredients, as I was reading, there there are lots of things that call for things like pigeon blood and lots of animal blood. Uh, and I was thinking, okay, that maybe makes sense if people were eating a lot of pigeon as their diet, that they might have pigeon blood around. But then it would get into, okay, and now you need elephant dung. And I would think, how am I getting elephant dung? That doesn't, that seems like it would be a little hard to come by. Yeah. And I think what's going on there is, you know, there are some ingredients that uh, you use because you have them on hand. Um, so that can be herbs in the garden and various types of animal parts and products, um, you know, the beef blood and the weasel fat and this sort of thing. Um, and then there are things that I think are supposed to have sort of an aura of strangeness. And, you know, you might sort of believe in the efficacy of the recipe more because the ingredient seems a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. Um, I think one example of that is recipes that call for unicorn's horn. Um, and nearly all of the recipes that I've looked at that involve unicorn's horn sort of acknowledge that this is not something that's going to be accessible to everyone. It's expensive. Um, <laughs> So if you have the means to acquire some unicorn horn, then go right ahead. And if not, then you can use this other thing. That'll be fine. So some of the advice that's in here seems so bizarre that I wonder how anybody ever thought that it would work. And one of the things that really jumped out with me at me is the one that was about killing snakes by luring them with crab cakes and then hitting them with radishes. <laughs> Yeah, um, right. I have to say that I have not tried this one, um, but if anyone has, let me know how that turned out for you. Um, yeah, the radish does not seem to be seem to me to be the most obvious weapon to use against a snake. 
I have to admit. (laughs) (laughs) Why a radish? I think it says a large radish. It specifically is a very big radish. If it's big enough. Another of the oddities that that kind of jumped out at me is to to, uh, jump back to the idea of manners is that a lot of these pieces that are about etiquette are simultaneously written in a way that we would consider to be rather rude. So one of the very first pieces of advice is, is all about etiquette, and it's about not burping or passing gas while you're dancing with a lady. Uh, but the way that it's written, people would think that that's at least, at the very least, very indelicate by today's standards. Um, did you often, as you were working on this, find this disconnect between advice that holds up, but a way of discussing it that just seems off compared to what we would expect people to talk about that way today? Yeah, and I don't think that that's entirely a coincidence um, in the case of that particular text. Um, and this is something that I find with how-to manuals generally. For everyone where you read the piece of advice and you sort of scratch your head and you think, I am not so sure about that, um, you know, what's the point of a, a how-to manual whose advice doesn't actually accomplish what it says it's going to accomplish? Um, there's another one that actually does sort of more than what it is presenting at face value. Um, and that's, that's one of them. And I think it's because it's a, a Latin poem, actually. It's, this is, this is a poem on dancing advice. Um, and not in the first edition of this poem, but in later editions, it includes this sort of ridiculous comic advice about kind of the earthier aspects of the dance. And so that, that piece of advice about um, not eating onions before you go to the dance and not burping and, you know, if you have to sneeze, here's how you should do it. This seems ridiculous and it sort of is. I mean, I think the intention of that is not purely to explain to incompetent youth how they should behave at a dance, but um, to entertain people who are reading this, you know, it's actually a work of literature. And then in other cases, in other advice on etiquette, I think sometimes uh, just the fact of presenting it in a sort of ridiculous way might uh, help to convey the advice a little bit more forcefully. Um, sort of make it more more memorable and kind of shame you into behaving properly. Before we talk about some of the modern parallels of all this weird old advice, let's have another brief word from a sponsor. So we are going to close out our interview with Elizabeth by talking about some of the modern parallels to these old advice and etiquette manuals, a couple of which I had not considered at all. And we're also going to hear about one of her favorite pieces of advice, which is one that uh, surprisingly holds up pretty well today. Yeah. And then stay tuned after we're done talking because we are going to have some pretty important listener mail. When I, before I started reading this book, I was sort of expecting it to be uh, like a medieval slash early modern version of like an advice column. But after getting to the end, it feels almost like a medieval and early modern version of men's and women's magazines today. It's 
It's like a collection that, that turns into a 500-year-old Cosmo. 500 years from now, what kind of things do you think people are going to be turning to to, to figure out the same sort of, of weirdness about how we lived at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, it's true. Some of some of this material does sort of remind me of magazines. Um, I think the reason for that is, you know, it's responding to needs that we still have. Um, so, for instance, um, we're still on the eternal quest for brilliant little life hacks, right? Um, you know, how to sober up, how to how to make a cake when you run out of sugar, how to overcome your fear of heights, um, all of these things you can find in 17th century books. Um, that's all stuff that I think we would probably turn to the Internet for today. In a lot of categories, I think that, you know, the Internet has become our collective how-to manual. Yeah, and, and now I had not made that connection at all. But now that you pointed out, some of the life hacks that exist out there are just as absurd as things uh, in the book. Or like, instead of instead of scrubbing your potatoes, put them in the dishwasher. <laughs> I think that's the most absurd one that I can think about or think of at, at this at this particular moment. Do you have a favorite of all these just delightful gems of of odd and sometimes touching advice? Do you have a favorite one of all of them? Um, well, I have a lot of favorites, but um, one of my very favorites is about traveling. Um, and this is from a work from the 15th century uh, by... Santo Brasca, who uh, wrote a guide to pilgrimage to the Holy Land. This is sort of a common genre. And the advice that he gives about traveling is not completely unique, but I just really like the way that he articulates it. Um, so he says that a traveler should have two bags with him, and one of them should contain a lot of money, and the other one should contain Patience. And I think that anyone who has ever gone through an airport in the modern era uh, has encountered that problem. You really need to have your suitcase of patience. And then, of course, he also says that you need a lot of um, cured tongue and uh, ginger syrup in order to settle your stomach while you're traveling. But um, but I really like the suitcase full of patience. Well, and the the ginger to settle your stomach is one of those that carries all the way through until today. I hear people recommend that all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So is there anything else that you just you want to make sure that the world knows about your book? I guess one thing I'd like to add is um, just sort of the idea of what a how-to manual is. Um, and I think in the Renaissance, which is sort of, from, from my perspective, at least, kind of the great age of the how-to manual. Um, the thing that I really love about how-to manuals is that they offer a kind of possibility. They sort of make this promise that you can become someone new and it doesn't require divine intervention or, you know, special status that you're born with or even 10,000 hours of practice. You just need this clever technique that the book is going to teach you and, you know, maybe a few quirky household ingredients. So 
you can read these books and find out how to have blonde hair or improve your memory or become a you know smooth courtier or lover instead of a bumpkin and that's what I think is really appealing about how to manuals and it ties back to that idea of of uh, men's and women's magazines and life hacks like these things where if you follow these steps your life will be easier and better exactly and you know, who knows how many cases it actually played out that way, but there's just such optimism in the genre. So I would like to thank Elizabeth P. Archibald again for taking the time to talk to me. Her book, Ask the Past, Pertinent and Impertinent Advice from Yesteryear, is out now. It is delightful. Her blog is also delightful. Thank you again for talking to us. Do you also, I know you do because you mentioned it already, have some important and, and interesting listener mail? I do. We've gotten some pretty valid uh, corrections on the podcast lately. We got a couple of notes after our episode about the St. Kitts Slave Revolt about how to say Nevis and Antigua, which you say as I just said them, rather than Nevis and Antigua, which is how we said them on the show. <laughs> But you have traveled there, and you heard most people that you spoke to saying Nevis, which is why right. you presumed that was cool. I did not look it up, because I had heard so many people saying them that way. What I have learned since then is that uh, because most of the people I was talking to were ship's staff and ship's crew, and a lot of them, their first language was Dutch, or maybe Hindi, or maybe they were from the Caribbean and had a like a, a Caribbean, various Caribbean accent. Those accents affected that pronunciation, and it didn't quite translate to how we say it in English (laughs) in America. So that, to be fair, is one I did not look up. Uh, The other one, we have gotten possibly the most email about of any correction ever. In the Correction Olympics, it ranks high. It's quite high. Uh, And most of these letters were kind. Thank you for the most of you who were kind. (laughs) However, most of them were also incorrect. So this is our episode recently about the Texas Revolution, which uh, that we took, we talked about a siege. A lot of the corrections we got are analogous to if we had done an episode about uh, 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 Juan Ponce de Leon, and then the entirety of Atlanta wrote to us to say it's Ponce de Leon. Right, which is how there's, for those of you who don't know, there is a, a famous road here in Atlanta. Our offices, is, in fact, are on it. Which everybody here calls Ponce de Leon. Right. Which, that's, when I first moved here, it made my stomach hurt. But Right, that's not how you say his name. When in Rome. But, you know, <laughs> centuries later, that is how people say the name of the road that was named after him. So... What we should have said in our siege episode about the Texas Revolution, we should have called it the Siege of Behar. We're going to talk about why with two different pieces of mail. But the first of them is from my friend Hayden from college. And he, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it was a, a note to me and not to the podcast. And he said, Texas history, particularly the period of the revolution, can be a real mess. So it was nice to hear a clear summary of the events. I have just a couple of comments. First, the pronunciation of Behar. When speaking of the village of Behar, as is, as it was generally known during the colonial and republic periods, the generally accepted pronunciation is Behar. In modern Texas, the city of San Antonio is in Bear County, and the residents there pronounce it Bear. 
you also mentioned that te- Texas independence was declared ma- March 1st, 1836. It was actually declared March 2nd, which was Sam Houston's birthday. I don't know where the second error came from. So uh, that was that was Hayden on how to pronounce Behar. I also got a great email from Samantha. Samantha says, I've been listening to the podcast for years, hoping to hear something that could spark an excuse to write in, and I finally have one. But unfortunately, instead of a cute story, it's a slight correction. I appreciate your caveat at the top of the cast regarding the improper pronunciation of the rolled R at the end of Behar, something few people who did not learn the correct malformation to pronounce that particular sound as a child can accomplish. However, the rest of the word is also mispronounced, and then she has like the slanty face emoticon (laughs) with the like slightly frowny mouth. I have to start by admitting I am not a native Spanish speaker or a linguist, but I did grow up in San Antonio and I took Spanish and German in high school. And the proper pronunciation of Bear County, where San Antonio is located, was discussed several times as an example of the influence of the linguistic traditions of the region's main cultural groups on our modern pronunciations of traditional words and names. The original word, Bejar, being Spanish, was most likely pronounced Bejar, treating the the X like a J to sound like ye, ye, or ha. We can see this in the original pronunciation of Texas as Tejas, and in the correct pronunciation of Oaxaca, a word I love to see non-Spanish speakers struggle to pronounce in Mexican restaurants. My language teacher always explained that be- that Behar, pronounced Behar, softened to bear, under the influence of Germanic language traditions, which came in with large numbers of German immigrants to the area, settling towns like Fredericksburg and New Braunfels. And I should have looked up how to say that before I read this letter, but I didn't. In fact, until about 30 years ago, a form of German was still spoken by elderly native-born residents of these towns, much like Creole is still spoken in small parts of Louisiana. And some people even thought the word was actually German in origin, but rewritten in Spanish. I think the memory of this story, as well as spending a lot of time in St. Louis and New Orleans, where the mix of French, English, Spanish, and Native American languages have created some very interesting pronunciation standards that are seemingly at odds with traditional correct pronunciations, turned into a dilettante fascination with the evolution of language. Uh, and then she actually, uh, then she actually recommends um, an audiobook of the Great Courses, The Story of Human Language, which is a full semester's worth of classroom le- lectures about the evolution of language. Um, and then she says, that said, she was really great that we did the episode. So, here's what happened. I looked up how to say Behar at Forvo. Yeah, and For- we got the Spanish version. We got the Spanish version thinking it would be more correct to the place and time we were talking about. The Spanish language pronunciation of Behar at Forvo, when we looked at it, was wrong. Like, it was frankly wrong. Um, and because, you know, T-E-X-A-S is spelled, pronounced Texas in yeah. English, and, and M-E-X-I-C-O is pronounced Mexico in English, and the fact that I have never studied Spanish beyond, uh, I think, a semester in third grade. With Whoa! A, yeah. Yeah, or maybe a quarter. It was a very small amount of of third grade Spanish where we mostly learned numbers in the alphabet. Uh, it did not occur to me that that was wrong. So I'm sorry I messed that up. However, everyone who angrily wrote to us, uh, we got an email that literally started, um, it's pronounced bear. Like, don't, don't, don't write to anyone <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, it would not actually have been correct to have called that town bear. But it also was not correct to call it Bexar. We Correct. Should have, we should have called it Behar. And just as a public service announcement, 
uh, uh, most of you were nice. Thank you so much for most of you being nice. But like, just in general, as a general rule, <laughs> if you're if you're writing to anyone in the world to correct something they have done, imagine that you yourself have just made a large and 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 irritating and upsetting error in front of literally thousands of people. Uh, kind of imagine how you would feel about that before you write your email to yell at them about it. And know that you're one of thousands of people doing so. Yeah, we got literally hundreds of emails. My, my, I, I mean, I don't, people are welcome to couch their complaints any way they want. I'm not they're the boss of them. My thing, though, is always like when people start something like that and it's, my ears bled and I cried. And I'm like, okay, nobody on this podcast is like, let's make some ears bleed today. We're going to really rock yeah. this out. You know, I don't want to hurt anybody with mispronunciation. It is an accident always. Right. Not, neither of us are ever like, I don't care. Just say it however you want. Well, and to sort of give you a little behind the scenes, uh, behind the scenes of stuff you missed in history class, the level of effort that we take to find correct pronunciations just does not correspond to a reduction in how many corrections we get about it. It like, really doesn't. Regardless of what steps we take. Like, for example, we gave <laughs> the Say Shonagone uh, outline that I, to, for the episode we mentioned at the top of the show, coincidentally, we gave it to someone who spoke Japanese and has lived in Japan, and that person gave us phonetic pronunciations for every single word in it. We still got pronunciation corrections for Japanese. Or uh, our Treaty of Waitangi episode. Yeah. I looked up documentary footage of New Zealanders talking about it, and and then we imitated that, and we still got corrections about that. So regardless of whether we're talking about uh, accents of English that are not American English or words in languages that we don't speak, like regardless of what steps we take, we still get things wrong. <laughs> Sadly, we cannot speak. We don't speak all the languages. No, and well, Tracy has more Spanish training than I do. For that matter. <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to weird regional pronunciations, uh, what these are actually good for is separating who's from here with who's not from here. And we're not from there. Uh, and I, we're going to do our best, but we are seriously always going to get stuff wrong, regardless of what effort we take. Yeah, it's just kind of. Um Comes with the package. Yeah. Somebody suggested asking fans on Twitter and I was like, this is, that's an idea, but that like we don't have a way to figure, figure out which responses are legitimate and which ones are people trolling us and like regional pronunciations can be so wacky that it's hard to tell the difference. Well, and even when we've done episodes and gotten really irate corrections, they have often come in with like seven different options yeah. about they are not all in agreement either. Yeah. So at that point, you're kind of opening a can of worms of like, let's start a Twitter fight over how things are pronounced. <laughs> and I, again, I, I don't want to do this podcast to cause violence or unrest. <laughs> or make people's ears bleed with our, with our I pronunciation. I don't want any of that. Yes. So thank you, Samantha, for writing. And thank you, Hayden, for writing. And thank you, all the other people who sent us nice corrections. And thank you to the people who sent us mean corrections, too, for taking the time. Uh, I, 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 some of the things that I answered, I'm sure I sounded frustrated and discouraged because I had answered literally 50 mean emails that day. <laughs> yeah, by the 70th time that you've been told in like a three hour period how terrible you are and that like you are killing the universe with your evil, <laughs> poorly pronounced words. Yeah. It's hard to maintain like, hey, how you doing? Thanks yeah. so much. I'm I'm really I'm really sorry. I'm so I'm actually mortified, frankly, still that we got that so spectacularly wrong, but it should not have been fair based on what we were talking about. 
It should have been Behar. Anyway, so thank you so much to everyone who uh, who corrected us on that. Please don't correct us anymore. We got it now. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to uh, our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find show notes, including the note where we corrected that pronunciation the day the episode came out. Uh, you can also find a whole archive of everything we've ever talked about. You can go to our parents' company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and find out all kinds of stuff about etiquette. We have a whole collection of etiquette articles if you put etiquette in the search bar. If you want to write to us about things, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com or on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. So come visit us at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com and take a look at Ask the Past. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 